When I was living in New York City, one of my favorite things to do was take improv comedy classes. And during one of my classes, there were these two guys, it was their turn to do a scene together. And the suggestion given to inspire the scene was sorority sisters. Immediately, one of the guys starts stroking his imaginary improv hair, and he starts talking like this, and he says, Oh my God, he said, I don't know what to wear to the fraternity mixer tonight. And the other guy in the scene right away adopted the exact same mannerisms and tones. Oh my God, I know, right? I don't remember the whole scene that they did. It was more of that. Um, I remember watching it and understanding why it was supposed to be funny, uh, understanding how they were playing off of a one-dimensional version of what they pictured when they pictured a girl who was in a sorority. But I don't remember anything that actually turned out to be really funny about the scene other than seeing these two people just acting silly. And I'll just say my improv teacher for this class is someone who I regard very highly. And he was very much into steering us away from looking for cheap laughs, right? When the thing that was the joke was a stereotype or a cliche. And so after these two gentlemen finished their scene, our teacher asked if either of them personally knew someone who had been in a sorority in college. And they both just kind of shrugged and maybe, they said, they weren't really sure. And our teacher said that he could tell that neither of these characters that they created were based on any real people that these two men knew. He asked the rest of us in the class if any of us had been in a sorority in college, and me and one other woman raised our hands. Me, who in college had been a gender studies major who played sousaphone in the marching band and every night was rushing back to my dorm room trying to make it in time for Jeopardy. The other woman, a scientist who was also a hilarious improv comedian with the best character faces, the best comedic timing. Neither of us at all resembled these two ditzy sounding boy obsessed characters in the scene and we never had. Now this was a low stakes situation. I don't think that these guys in my improv class meant any harm. I wasn't really offended. Sorority girl stereotypes don't exactly register to me as oppressive. This wasn't an identity marker like race or religion or sexuality or ethnicity. In fact, sorority girl holds a lot of privilege, especially for someone like me who's white. But there's a reason that the scene didn't end up being as funny as it could have been there was no real truth to it. These people that they created in this scene, they weren't relatable or believable. They weren't real humans. And the fact that this was the first thought that came to these guys for their scene, the fact that this was the image that popped up in their head just goes to show how quickly and immediately and easily our brains can flatten 
people, people who we see as different from ourselves. Now, I'll admit, it's easy for me to tell this story as someone from the group that was flattened and misrepresented in this situation, but I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about the time it was my turn to do a scene in class, and the suggestion for the scene was that it would take place in a gym. And so, of course, I puff out my chest and pull out my invisible weights and deepen my voice and I go, yeah, brah, <laughs> we're gonna get swole. <laughs> Dude, check out my biceps epic. <laughs> and then after the scene, our improv teacher asked how many of the men in our class went to the gym. And almost every guy raised his hand. All of them were far more interesting and complex than my silly one-dimensional gym bro. I'm gonna be honest with you, friends. I'm wiped out. The pandemic stress, especially the first year of it, when my husband and I both worked full-time jobs from home with no childcare, is starting to catch up with me. My five-year-old is getting his COVID vaccine this afternoon, and I am getting my booster, so that feels amazing. But the dragging on of this virus and all the needs for precaution, the decision-making left and right about what is safe, what is inclusive, what is right for ourselves and our institution and our world, it's just been a lot. And I am someone with immense privilege. I'm incredibly grateful for my employment here, the flexibility it has allowed for my children and for their health, for my spouse. But even with all of these wonderful things, this has still been a lot. I also have a chronic illness, which I have shared about before, and it has been acting up in the last few months which has added just an additional layer of hard. I'm not telling you this for pity, I'm fine, but just to let you in to my own experience. I know my experience is my own, but I also know that many of you share many of these struggles. I know that some of you have not felt the same kinds or the same level of stress during this pandemic, and perhaps you wonder why other people are so frazzled. I hope that sharing makes us all feel less isolated, more connected to our own shared humanity. And that is why today I wanted to talk about googly eyes. Because, friends, I saw these pictures on the internet recently, and I laughed so hard. I don't know why they struck me as so funny. Maybe I was just experiencing the right mix of tired and goofy. But I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm going to preach about, but I have to share these pictures in a Sunday service. If you ever wonder how sermons come about. We all need a smile or a laugh right now. That video that we saw earlier of the little girls in Spain eye-bombing 
is just so joyful and silly. I invited our kids in religious education to also do a bit of eye-bombing, so uh, check those out when you leave. Here are some other funny images that I found online that made me laugh, and I hope that they give you a little joy too, because Lord knows we need it right now. These were the ones that started me off, the bell peppers. They're just so funny. What is he surprised about? <laughs> and that guy is just so happy. I just love it. It's so good. And their teeth, it's so funny. Okay, this next one. <laughs> that ethernet jack or phone jack, he's just surprised. It just is so good. And then I don't know if that is the washing machine, if that's his tongue hanging out or I think maybe he's like sick, like bleh. And then this last one. <laughs> I, I just love the little, this, this, uh, it, it was called Grandfather Chayote, was the, the vegetable on the left. And I just think he looks so sweet sitting up there on that pile, kind of, you know. And, and then the door handle, it looks, you know, they all sort of have this perpetually surprised look. You know, he's kind of like, oh. <laughs> so that's, that, these guys just made me laugh. And I was wondering to myself, why? Why are they so funny? And so I did a little searching around, and I learned that two things particularly make us get a kick out of these inanimate objects with googly eyes. One is the simple shape of the googly eye. It's very round, and it has that very white uh, sclera and the purple, I mean the black um, pupil, which makes them look surprised. And that's just generally funny <laughs> for some reason to us. And the other thing I learned is that the addition of the eyes facilitates something called pareidolia, pareidolia, which is the human tendency to perceive patterns where they don't really exist like the perception of faces in peppers or keyholes or door handles. The other thing that makes me giggle is wondering what the bell pepper is so surprised about. Was it the act of getting cut in half that shocked him? Was she simply surprised by seeing a human face staring back at her? Did they get startled by the dip that was coming their way? What made the washing machine sick? Was it the smelly teenage socks in the load? And I have compassion for Grandfather Chayote, just sitting there on top of the pile, watching the shoppers go by. Did he want to be chosen, or would he rather stay at the store? And this is the other reason I wanted to talk today about googly eyes. Because if we can anthropomorphize or humanize vegetables, or appliances, or holes in the wall, then certainly we can do that for each other. If we have the ability to see a face where one doesn't exist and wonder about the circumstances of their expressions, then certainly we have the capacity to see humanity in each other's faces and have curiosity about and compassion for our shared human experience. And I have found that because of everything I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, my own tiredness, stress, worry, illness, 
that I have found myself with a diminished ability or perhaps even a diminished willingness to offer grace to those in my life. I'm particularly struggling to offer grace to those who I am in disagreement with or whose behavior I find challenging. I find myself jumping to conclusions about their intentions, attributing all sorts of negativity to their actions, even when I have no idea what is really going on. And I've also been on the receiving end of this a fair amount lately. I find out that someone is really frustrated with me or sure that I'm mad at them when it turns out I just didn't return their call because I was sick or something. In the video we watched earlier, we learned about the psychological term, the fundamental attribution error. These days, this is the phenomenon that I find myself defaulting to or being on the receiving end of. The fundamental attribution error is the common, very common tendency for people to attribute internal characteristics or motivation to other people's behavior, but not to their own behavior. That is, if you are short with me at the grocery store, obviously it's because you're simply a rude human being with no social skills. On the other hand, if I am rude to someone at the grocery store, it's because I have a headache or I'm stressed about work or I'm worried about that upcoming test my kid has to take. Notice that in this scenario, I am more willing to offer myself the benefit of the doubt because I understand what is going on in my own life, so I attribute my own behavior to my circumstances. In other words, I give myself grace. The fundamental attribution error says that my error is not in extending the same grace to others, assuming ill intentions or poor character, rather than assuming or even just wondering about the fullness of their humanity. Remember the washing machine? I wondered why it was sick. Or the bell pepper? Why was it so surprised? I could generate at least three reasons why that bell pepper had that shocked look on its face. Why do many of us struggle to do this with other humans? The short answer is that our brains use shortcuts all the time to save energy. Our brains are these very massive organs and they're working all the time and they take up a lot of energy. And so in order to save some, our brains use these shortcuts. The fundamental attribution error, just like any bias in our thinking, is easier and faster for our brains than spending time and energy on curiosity and finding out what's really going on or even generating imagined scenarios for them. That just takes more time. And when we're under stress, and many of us are right now, our brains get even lazier and more prone to these shortcuts. Now, if we know anything about the other person, then we might have an easier time extending that grace. If the hypothetical person who was rude to me at the grocery store had three young children in tow, I might think to myself, wow, that person is juggling a lot right now instead of how rude. Or if it's your next door neighbor, perhaps, you might think, I don't know much about them, but I do know that they never use their leaf blower until after 9 a.m. 
And I appreciate that. They can't be all bad. When I was serving in my last congregation, I found myself on the receiving end of some anger that was totally the result of the fundamental attribution error. And it was almost funny how far out it became. When I arrived as the faith development minister, one of my main areas to focus of focus was the religious education program for children and youth. And so I spent a lot of time in those first few weeks cleaning and organizing the RE classrooms and the storage closet, getting everything ready and usable. And then I realized that the outdoor space was falling apart. There were these rusty nails sticking out of the wooden playground and it was kind of leaning to the side and it was just really unsafe. In hindsight, I should have communicated more and had more of a process, but what I did was just call together some volunteers and we dismantled the unsafe playground, tossed it in the dumpster, and then it took a lot of time to resolve some major stormwater runoff issues that were actually causing the damage in the first place so that we could then remove, uh, rebuild the playground. But then I started to learn in that time period that a rumor was spreading around the congregation that Reverend Christina actually doesn't think children should play. She wants to create a really academic religious education program. And looking back on this now, I, I have to laugh. Anyone who knows me, even a little tiny bit, knows that I love people of all ages and that I love to play and have fun. This was so far outside the truth that it was shocking and honestly hurtful to realize that people had assumed my intention was because I was some sort of child fun-hating minister, not because I needed to try to keep our kids safe, and no one even asked me. But once I realized that this rumor was spreading, I worked to correct the misunderstanding, and eventually all was well. Now, speaking of playgrounds that are unsafe and need to be dismantled, ours does here at this fellowship. I'm looking for a handful of volunteers who might be willing to come help us take it apart before it gets too cold. And then we're going to have a fundraiser this winter and eventually in the spring install some new equipment. Not because I don't think kids should play, but because they need a safer space to do so. So please let me know if you're interested in helping. Now that is one relatively low stakes example of the fundamental attribution error in real life. I bet you can think of examples of when you have done this to someone else or when you've had it done to you. As Ali said in her reflection, it is a way that we flatten each other into a one or two dimensional caricature, not allowing the possibility of our full humanity to shine through. It's even easier to do this with people we don't know, the sorority girl, the gym guy, to use Allie's examples, or closer to home, the person who disagrees with me about masks and vaccines, the person who is on the other end of the political spectrum from me, the person who would be counter-protesting when I was protesting. It's easier when we don't know the person at all to assume all sorts of terrible things about them. So I want you to do a thought experiment with me. Just in your own mind, think of one of those examples. Imagine that person 
who is diametrically opposed to you. You don't know anything about them except the fact of their philosophical or political opposition. Imagine that person in your mind. What pops up immediately? Just think to yourself, what do you assume about them? They're uninformed at best, probably stupid, or brainwashed by social media or a certain news outlet. Or they're just bad people, unkind, selfish, or at worst, evil. You might have come up with other words. Now, if you were paying attention to the sermon, maybe your brain tried to do a run around those automatic thoughts, and maybe you tried to have some curiosity or compassion for them. Good for you. That's the goal. Because if we can do it for a door handle, then we can do it for our fellow human beings. Valerie Kaur, in her reading that we heard earlier, from the book See No Stranger, talks about exactly this. Seeing the other as neighbor, friend, family member. She says, quote, as I move through my day and come across faces on the street or the subway or on the screen, I say in my mind, sister, brother, sibling, aunt, uncle. I start to wonder about each of them as a person. Wonder is her antidote, antidote to her biases, which she is wise enough to know that she likely holds about almost everyone she meets. Silently renaming them as family in her mind helps her train herself to see them as fully human, the way I would with my own kin, with strengths and flaws, quirks, and whole lives that impact their behavior. It helps to see them in three dimensions. Now, I realize that this is hard. In addition to our brain's habit of creating shortcuts, we humans also have a hardwired tendency to be defensive. Often, when we misattribute behavior to some negative intention or character flaw, when we assume someone is just a jerk because they acted that way, it's because they have done something that hurt us. Maybe they hurt us a little bit, Maybe they truly harmed us. Maybe they're just acting in a way that is not the way that we think people should act. And it isn't directly hurting us, but our brains get defensive nonetheless. And this perceived or real hurt causes all of our defense mechanisms to go up. And it's very hard for us to consider offering gentleness, grace, or wonder. But I just absolutely love what Valerie Kaur says about this. Quote, I have learned that we do not need to feel anything for our opponents at all in order to practice love. Love is the labor that returns us to wonder. It is seeing another person's humanity even if they deny our own. We just have to choose to wonder about them. I do not owe my opponents my affection, warmth, or regard, but I do owe myself a chance to live in this world without the burden of hate. Laboring to love my opponents is how I love myself. End quote. 
And in times like these, we all need as much love as we can get. Remember, if we can humanize a vegetable, we can humanize each other. All it takes is to slow down a bit and wonder. If not for them, then do it for yourself. Be gentle with yourselves, dear ones. You deserve all the love and gentleness that you can get and all the love and gentleness that you can give. We don't always know the inner battles that each of us is fighting, and we do well to remember to be more compassionate to ourselves and to each other. Life is hard right now, friends, and my prayer is that we can each have more laughter, less judgment, and a lot more grace and love in our lives. May it be so, and amen.